So if you were with us last week, Jake took us through 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 1-16. through 16. And in it we see Paul defending his ministry against accusation. Through the passage we are reminded that Jesus is trustworthy and at work. This morning we get to spend some time in a beautiful section of Paul's first letter to the church um, in Thessalonica. In it we get to see Paul's deep affection for this church and his longing to be with them as they grow in their faith. Yet in the midst of this passage, all is not well. Maybe you picked up on this this morning when Janelle was reading. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. He's speaking about these trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that, you, that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. It turns out Christian life is not smooth sailing. Following Jesus isn't easy. In fact, following Jesus doesn't make our lives any easier. Accepting Christ as our Savior doesn't make our problems go away. It doesn't make our life easier. So, for example, if you were sick before you accepted Jesus, before you began to follow Jesus, you might not be suddenly healed. God certainly can heal you. He has the power to do so. He created our bodies after all. But following Jesus does not often result in immediate automatic healing. In fact, there are many faithful followers of Jesus who remain afflicted with illness. If you're out of work before accepting Jesus, following Jesus didn't probably result in you just automatically being given a job. God can definitely supply us with employment. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. He's got the resources. But there are many faithful followers of Jesus who are unemployed. And if you're facing tough life circumstances before you began following Jesus, accepting Jesus as your Savior doesn't make those go away automatically. Now God sees you. He sees the pain that you're experiencing and his heart breaks for you. We see that reflected over and over again in Scripture. And he's a good God who's faithful in rescuing, in restoring, and at making things whole. But Christians still have scars and bruises from a world that's broken, from lives and relationships that are broken, from choices that are destructive. So may God rescue, restore, and make things new soon. But until then, he's no less faithful and good. Now, in addition to problems such as these, as followers of Jesus, we are destined to face distress, persecution, trials, and temptation. In fact, both the writer of Thessalonians, that was Paul, and the people of the church of Thessalonians were facing persecution at the same time. So this isn't rare for followers of Jesus to face these things. It's actually common. Because when we accept Christ as our Savior, when we choose to follow Jesus, when Jesus takes hold of our lives, our lives don't suddenly, miraculously get easier. It's because it's not easy, comfortable, or safe to follow Jesus. In fact, it's hard, uncomfortable, and maybe even dangerous. Now, on top of that, Jesus has enemies. There are those that are opposed to Jesus. And that means that they're opposed to the followers of Jesus. For the Thessalonians, following Jesus was a pretty unpopular path to take. First of all, it upset the leaders of the synagogue. Um, so we actually see in Acts uh, that Paul was kicked out of 
Thessalonica, he preached three times, and then he got the boot um, from the synagogue leaders. And, and that was because they had a lot to lose from the gospel, namely power and prestige. But on top of that, the larger ruling culture, the Gentile culture uh, that Thessalonica was part of, um, was not a fan of the gospel. The Romans were not, not into Christians. Uh, in fact, uh, the problem there is the gospel presents a way of life that doesn't really fit in with Greek culture. We're actually going to get to dive into that a little bit more in the coming weeks as we go further into 1 Thessalonians. So just tease that this morning. So what does this lead to? What does this uh, people being enemies of Jesus lead to? Well, it leads to direct opposition. As I said, Paul got literally kicked out of Thessalonica, run out on a rail. Um, he gets the boot. But, but also there's indirect opposition. There's shock and incredulity at the message of Christ. In fact, in another letter to a different church, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 describes it this way. Jews, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Basically, the message of Jesus confounds everybody equally. Now, Given all this, I actually need to take a moment and make a quick aside here. Because it's important that we understand something very clearly. I mentioned that Jesus has enemies. And so as followers of Jesus, we get some enemies too. But that doesn't actually make the culture our enemy. Uh, And that's whether or not it considers Jesus' enemy. Here's what I mean by that. Following Jesus means defying the culture while also not setting yourself up as antagonistic towards that culture. So we're not going to fit into the culture. That was the problem in Thessalonica. That hasn't changed since from, from then till today. And because we don't fit into the culture, persecution is not avoidable. And that's why Paul reminds the Thessalonians to, that they are destined for these trials. But despite this, as followers of Jesus, we're not meant to approach the culture arrogantly as though they are our enemies. Notice that at the end of this passage, and we're going to get there again, but as Janelle read, that Paul asked God to increase the, the love of the Thessalonians, not just for one another, but for everyone else. So what should our response to our culture actually look like if we're not supposed to treat them as they are our enemies, even though they might think of us as enemies of them? Well, consider Jesus' own words. Matthew 5. Jesus said, you have heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what's our response supposed to be towards the culture? Just that. We're supposed to be praying for our culture and we're supposed to be showing the love of Jesus to our culture. Because as it turns out, the real enemy, the root of all of this opposition that both the Thessalonians and Paul were facing, Paul names it. It's Satan. And in yet another letter to yet another church, uh, Ephesians 6, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what does Satan do? What's his role in this? Well, First of all, direct opposition. Paul says, chapter 2, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians, um, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did it again and again, but Satan blocked our way. 
Satan provides direct opposition. He stops Paul. He prevents Paul from returning to Thessalonica, and he stands in the way of what Paul's ministry goal was, which is to be with the Thessalonians and to continue to minister to them. But we also see in this passage that we read this morning uh, indirect opposition. Paul's expressing some concern about temptation. Uh, We see it in chapter 3, verses 5. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Those temptations could take a couple different forms. One of the things that Paul talks about over and over again in his letters to the various churches in Asia Minor is um, false teaching. It's a big concern. People who are going around and they're presenting a gospel that wasn't the gospel of Christ. It didn't, didn't match with what the Bible said. It was a perverted gospel. That's one possible temptation, false teaching. Another one is the temptation to just walk away. And if you're in the midst of trials and, and temptations, you're in the midst of persecution, that's a real concern, right? You could be overwhelmed. You could just say, this is too hard. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just going to, I'm all done. And the third possible temptation is just disobedience, turning from God. Talking about sin here. This is the same trick that the devil pulled back in the garden. Take our eyes away from Jesus and to place them on ourselves and our sin. So in light of all this, we have to conclude following Jesus doesn't make our lives any easier. Following Jesus doesn't make our problems go away. Not automatically. To add to things, we face a culture that opposes Jesus. And this opposition is ultimately rooted in Satan's attempts to fight the gospel. So in the light of all this, I have to remind us that we're not dest- that we are, excuse me, that we are destined for trials and persecution, and so we should expect them. So where's the good news? I thought the gospel was supposed to be good news. Doesn't that word literally mean good news? None of this seems like particularly good news. It's actually a pretty bleak picture. But here's the thing. This is not a hopeless passage. Not even a little bit. This is a passage that's full of hope. Paul's tone in this passage isn't one of hopelessness. It's full of affection for the church. It's full of joy. In fact, he actually uses the word joy three times in these 15 verses. Why? In the light of this, why is it such a joyful passage? Because of this. Our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is Jesus. The hope in Jesus sustained the Thessalonian church through trials and suffering. The good news of the gospel gave them hope. So let's remind ourselves, what is this good news exactly? Well, first, Jesus rose from the dead. So this battle is already won. So notice, uh, Satan succeeds in blocking Paul. He keeps Paul from going back to Thessalonica and ministering to the church there. But he fails in the larger goal of tempting the Thessalonians away from the gospel. So while Satan manages to stop Paul, he doesn't block God at all. God manages to do what he's doing in the church. On top of that, Jesus gets the final word. Because despite whatever's going on in the world, justice and judgment are coming. But we're reminded earlier in Thessalonians, in fact, we looked at this a few weeks ago, um, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, that those who put their hope in Jesus are protected from the coming wrath. 
Now, all this is good news. It really genuinely is. It's good news. But if things stopped here, if the good news ended here, we'd actually be left wanting a little bit more. Because our hope is not just in knowing that our future is secure. Our hope is, needs to be one for the present as well. And if you look back at chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, Paul says this in verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. This is good news. Joy in the midst of suffering. Hope in the future and hope and joy in our present. And we actually see this reflected in Paul's response. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since, we are, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? The good news of the gospel overshadows the bad news. It overshadows the trials and the persecution. And because of this, we can say that our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is Jesus. Because of this, Paul didn't have to hide the bad news. Instead, he warned them about it. And not just in passing, oh, by the way, or did you read the memo, or mumble, mumble. And he didn't just do it the one time. He wasn't like, oh, did you go to that meeting where I talked about persecution? Oh, you didn't? Sorry. No, instead it says in verse, chapter 3, verse 4, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted. They did it, he did it over and over again. I'm just going to remind you of what I told you a bunch of times. What does this tell us? It tells us that if the good news were if the bad news were worse than the good news, if the bad news were worse than the good news, what would Paul have done? He would have skipped it. He would have minimized it. Instead, he was open about it. Paul warned them about trials and persecution because he didn't want them to be unsettled by these trials. He wasn't worried about the bad news being better than the good news because it wasn't. We see uh, in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul tells them that he warned them so that they wouldn't be unsettled. I actually like what the ESV, the word the ESV uses here instead of unsettled. It uses the word unmoved. I think about a, like a lighthouse on the end of a point being cr- waves crashing into it. Can you picture it? I hope so, because I forgot to put an image in the slideshow right there. Sorry. But Paul is, is encouraging them to be unmoved, and this from a guy who spends a significant chunk of his life chained to a wall somewhere in a prison. It's amazing words coming from him. And so he sends Timothy to remind the Thessalonians of the gospel. Because they knew that the truth of the gospel would overpower the bad news of trials and persecution. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, they would remain unmoved. The good news was better than the bad news. And because of this, an amazing thing happens in this passage. By the power of the Spirit, God takes the focus off of Paul, or takes Paul's focus off of himself. He takes the church of, uh, in Thessalonica, of Thessalonica off of its, its... Let me try that again. By the power of the Spirit, God takes the focus 
off of themselves and of, the, of their circumstances, and he places it on him, on Jesus, on what Jesus is doing. Paul and Timothy are encouraged, are encouraging the Thessalonians while they themselves are being persecuted. Paul spends 15 verses, okay, basically he spends the whole letter just encouraging them and pouring out his love and encouragement to the church. He draws their attention off of their circumstances and he places it on Jesus. He reminds them of the, of the power of God that, that they see at work in their midst, that the gospel has taken hold and that the church is showing strong faith in the midst of persecution, joy in the midst of severe suffering. And not only that, most importantly, he points them to the source of their strength. In chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Paul prays a prayer that, they would, that their love would increase and overflow and that their hearts would be strengthened. So what does it look like when followers of Jesus put their hope in Jesus rather than their circumstances? What marks followers of Jesus who have let the good news take root in their hearts? Well, we see Paul prays for love and strong hearts. I want to propose that this looks like courage. Consider, you've just begun to follow Jesus. And since then, you've become convicted that you should begin to claim the wages that you've been earning under the table. Friends and loved ones who aren't following Jesus think you're nuts. Why do you give up free money? In fact, I would propose that if you'd like to be called an idiot by somebody, tell them that you're claiming taxes on wages that you're being paid under the table. Why do it then? Because by the power of the Spirit, you're convinced that following Jesus' call on your life is more important than financial security or the approval of others. Or consider the cost of owning up to the hurt that you've caused especially when deception, half-truths, or outright lies would have protected you from anybody even finding out about it. Think about the personal cost of standing up, owning your actions, and apologizing. Why do it? If you could get away Scott clean, why do it? Because you know that despite the cost of to you, this act of confession and repentance is just a small reflection of the depths of forgiveness that you've received in Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, you're convinced that following Jesus' call in your life is more important than the approval of others or feeling safe or comfortable. Putting our hope in Jesus rather than our circumstances allows us to follow him with courage. Now, in addition, there's another layer to consider here at work in this passage. This is a deeply relational passage. This is a letter where Paul is pouring out his heart to this church. It's not simply individuals trying to live out their faith in response to the good news all by themselves. It's a group of believers encouraging one another, 
as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're not meant to struggle alone. This passage is a call for community. Community provides, the Christian community provides an opportunity to share our testimonies, to share with one another what God's actually been doing in our lives. It's a chance to be transparent with one another about our trials and our joys and our struggles. It's an opportunity to be encouraged by the joy of seeing what God's doing in one another's lives. Look back at verse 7 with me of chapter 3. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. As the body of Christ, as the church, we have the privilege of imitating Paul and Timothy and the Corinthians, or excuse me, them too, but the Thessalonians. As a church, we get to encourage one another in the hope that we have in Jesus. We get to be united with one another as the church. We get to spur one another on towards holiness. We get to pray for one another. We get to practice a ministry of presence. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17, But brothers and sisters, we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not thought. Out of our distress and longing, we made every effort to see you. Paul's encouraging them in his absence by sending this letter, but he's making every effort possible, even through sending Timothy, to be able to encourage them in person, to be able to love and support them and pray with them in person. That's that ministry of presence. We get to do these things as the church. We get to have Christian community. Part of the good news of the gospel and the good gift for those that follow him is an opportunity for believers to come together and to spur one another on towards being unmoved in our faith in the midst of whatever circumstances we're going through. We get to encourage one another and we get to point one another towards the truth of the good news that's in the gospel. So given this, let me just encourage you. If this isn't part of your life, I want to just implore you to make every effort to make this part of your life. To take a step towards deeper relationship with Christ as you pursue community as part of his church. Join a Bible study. Dive into a small group. Join a triad. Meet with somebody one-on-one. Share your story. Share your testimony of what God's been doing in your life. Share your struggles. Share your fears. Give them an op- let them have an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel into your life. Now, even as I extend that invitation, I also want to say, praise the Lord. We're a church that I've seen do these things. I've personally been blessed by the encouragement of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm not alone. Many of us are involved in relationships where we get a chance to pour the truth of the gospel into one another's lives. We get to pray with one another. We get to laugh. We get to cry. We get to spur one another on. Praise the Lord. And as a weird example of how we see this at work, I want to talk about communion. We get an opportunity this morning to celebrate communion. And as we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us. 
Because of his work on the cross, we can place our hope in Jesus in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves. And even as communion reflects this profound reality of Christ's work on the cross, the way we do it at community church is we get a chance to serve one another. It's an awesome privilege to be able to serve one another communion, to be able to offer the bread and the cup and remind one another of the good news, Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you. And as as awesome as it is to serve, and many of us get a chance to do that, it's difficult. It's difficult because as a church, we've gotten an opportunity to share our lives with one another, to share our hopes and our joys and our fears and the struggles that we're going through in our lives. We've gotten a chance to encourage one another in the gospel and pray with one another and cry with one another. And so those words are hard to say some weeks because you're too busy crying because you're so overwhelmed by what God's doing in people's lives or what they're going through and how they're faithfully following Christ in the midst of the circumstances that God's put them in. Communion isn't the only ministry where people have admitted to be moved in this way. Talk to the worship team. Talk to the nursery. Talk to the youth center. Talk to children's ministry. People are being encouraged and encouraging one another by what God is doing. And this evidence of openness that we've had in this church and sharing your walk with one another and struggles with one another, it's a reflection of Paul's heart here in this passage and Paul's joy that we see in his letter. And in the midst of whatever circumstances we're going through, that our hope is Jesus. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, church, Lean into it. This is God at work, and this is beautiful. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, stand before you this morning. We are overwhelmed by what you're doing in our midst, Lord, by the evidence that we see of you at work. Lord God, not that you've necessarily made our lives easier. And in some cases, you following you may have made it harder, Lord God. But, but the good news of your gospel is so much better than that bad news, Lord God. I thank you, Father God, for the reminder of that this morning. And I pray, Father God, that we would pursue you more and more. And that we would pursue you as, our, as this church, as this body, and that we would encourage one another and pray with one another and remind one another of the gospel more and more, Lord God. I pray, Father God, that you would strengthen us in places that we need strengthening. I pray, Father God, that you would fill us with your love and that it would pour out of us for one another and for the world around us, Lord God. May your name be made more great. Thank you, Lord God, for the way that you love us. We pray these things, Father God, in your holy name. Amen.